It's good to be back with you. Um, I do need to set the record straight about one thing. Um, I heard from from one of you that uh, you were offering my condolences after a week away, or that your condolences, and uh, uh, I was not away for a, a funeral. Uh, my brother was getting married. Um, now, some of you might still choose to offer condolences, um, especially after Eli's sermon on divorce last Sunday, which, by the way, uh, what a powerful word. Uh, thank you, Eli, for faithfully preaching God's word, taking a tough text and uh, preaching it with compassion and grace. I appreciate you, brother, for that. Thank you very much. Now let's talk about lying. <laughs> Everything I just said, by the way, was true. <laughs> uh, when I was on, at the airport on my way to my brother's wedding, I saw a man with a t-shirt that boasted Lying is 95% of what I do. Now, since I know that 73.6% of statistics are made up on the spot, I was skeptical that his shirt was really telling the truth. Besides, can you really trust the t-shirt of a person who lies 95% of the time? The, the truth is lying is a bigger problem than many of us are willing to admit. Uh, researchers suggest that we are lied to as many as 200 times a day. Uh, one study conducted by the University of Massachusetts found 60% of people lied at least once during a 10-minute conversation and told an average of two to three lies. Apparently, lying isn't a learned behavior either. Uh, researchers have discovered that babies begin deceiving as early as six months old before they even learn how to talk. But not everybody lies in the same way. So a recent study of Britons revealed that men tell an average of uh, six lies a day, while women lie an average of three times a day. Now this is just a guess, but one reason for the difference that men don't uh, lie, or men lie a lot more than women could be that men don't ask women, does this outfit make me look fat? <laughs> uh, that same study found that the most common lie told by both men and women is, nothing's wrong, I'm fine. Just imagine what would happen if our pants really did catch on fire every time we said that and it wasn't really true. We laugh about this stuff, but the truth is lying hurts. It hurts those you lie to, sometimes tearing down trust that takes years to rebuild. It hurts those you lie about, sometimes destroying reputations, careers, marriages, families, and more. And it hurts the one telling the lie as you slowly lose your grip on reality and constantly live with the fear of being found out. To all of this, let me say to you, Jesus cares. Jesus cares. If you're not already there in your Bible, go to Matthew chapter 5, verse 33 through 37, the passage that was read earlier. We are in the middle of a sermon that Jesus preached to his disciples about how to live rightly as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. 
And what he's doing at this point in the sermon is he's, he's contrasting kingdom righteousness, the righteousness for followers of Jesus, with the, the popular righteousness of the day, the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees and the religious elite. And six times in this section, Jesus says, you have heard that, but I say to you this. The first time in verses 21 to 26, Jesus looked beyond the prohibition of murder to the anger that drives it. The second was in verses 27 through 30, where Jesus looked beyond the prohibition of adultery to the lust that precedes it. The third came in verses 31 and 32, where Jesus looks beyond the provisions for divorce to the creator's intent for marriage. And in today's text, Jesus looks beyond the common thinking about the swearing of oaths to God's desire for his people to be truthful. Jesus cares about the truth and one of, the reasons, one of the reasons why he does is because Jesus cares about you. I want you to see in our text two types of people that Jesus cares for. Jesus cares for victims of lies, and Jesus cares for the tellers of lies. Start with the victims of lies. But by victims of lies, I'm referring to those who are lied to and those who are lied about. If someone has ever lied to you or about you, I have good news for you, friend. Jesus cares for you. It is, I believe, Jesus' care for the victims of lies that motivates his teaching here in Matthew chapter 5. Listen to the text beginning in verse 33. Again, you have heard it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Now to understand how these words are like medicine to the victims of lies, we need to understand the context. And to do that, I want to ask six questions about those verses. Uh, first of all, what is an oath? What is an oath? In an oath, a, a person uh, calls upon someone or something else to bear witness to the truthfulness of what has been said while agreeing to certain penalties if the speaker isn't truthful. So if you were with us about a month ago, we looked at Numbers chapter 5, and in Numbers chapter 5, there's this ritual of bitter water that a woman would drink, and, and when she did so, it was, it was a condition that was given in the law for a, a woman whose wife suspected her of adultery but had no evidence. And she would drink this bitter water, and she would make an oath, swearing to before God, before the priest, before her husband, that she had been pure. She swore an oath. Um, today, we might say things like, I, I cross my heart and hope to die. Or, I swear to God. Or, one of my favorites from Disney's Robin Hood. You remember the cartoon with Robin Hood Fox? 
Toby the turtle is told to swear an oath that he won't tell anyone that Skippy the bunny is sneaking into the palace grounds to fetch his arrow. And the oath he swears goes like this. Spiders, snakes, and lizards' heads. If I tattletale, I'll die till I'm dead. That's a great one. But that's an oath. Swearing something, right? You're, you're usually you're referring to some higher authority. I swear to God or I swear that this will happen if I'm not telling the truth. Now, why is Jesus talking about oaths? Our second question, why is Jesus talking about them? Look again at verse 33. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said to those of old. Now, what follows, the quotation that Jesus gives is not a direct quote from the Old Testament, indicating that this is uh, Jesus dealing with not what the law says, but an abuse of the law. Uh, Jesus is not here to say, well, Moses said this, but I'm going to correct Moses. He's not correcting the Old Testament law. He's correcting the Pharisees' abuse of the Old Testament law. Which leads to a third question. What did the law say about oaths? There's a number of texts we could turn to. There'll be a few on the screen. Leviticus 19, verse 12 says, You shall not swear by my name falsely, and so profane the name of the Lord your God. I am the Lord. So the Lord forbade, the law forbid, irreverent oaths. If you're going to call upon the name of God, do so reverently. Do not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Don't take the Lord's name in vain. Or there's Numbers 30, verse 2. If a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. So the law forbade not only irreverent oaths, but broken oaths. If you make a promise, you better keep it. That was what the law said about oaths. So, which leads to another question. Why? Why did the law talk about oaths? Why this teaching? You know, if you're, if you're God speaking to Moses on Mount Sinai or as he's giving the law, why include teaching about oaths? Well, in a fallen world, oaths can actually be helpful. In a fallen world, in a world where we cannot always trust one another, in a world where people do sometimes lie, in a world where we cannot see each other's hearts, an oath can be helpful. It can encourage us in two ways. One, it can encourage the one who's making the oath to keep his word. So one example of this would be in the story of Jonathan and David. And you remember, Jonathan's father, Saul, is trying to kill David. And, and David is confiding in Jonathan, his friend. And one of the things Jonathan does is he swears an oath to David that he will not turn on him. They'll be friends forever. So Jonathan is, is encouraged to keep his word because of the oath that he's told. A second reason why oaths can be helpful is they actually uh, encourage the one receiving the promise to trust. So in other words, if someone makes a promise to you and they swear an oath, you, in theory, you should be able to trust them a little bit better because of the oath, the promise that they have made to you. In fact, God himself throughout scripture swears oaths 
for this very reason. So in Psalm 132, verse 11, the scripture says, The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which you will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. Now in that psalm, we're supposed to hear God swore an oath and we're supposed to uh, increase our trust in him. Or there's Hebrews chapter 6, which says that when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So oaths are a helpful reality in a fallen world. If you make an oath, if you, if you make a promise to someone, you hopefully would think twice before breaking it because of its seriousness. And if someone makes a promise to you, you should be more likely to believe them in theory. So for example, um, maybe one example of this, a couple of weeks ago, uh, uh, Holly and I got a, a new roof on our house, and the man who did the roof was our neighbor across the street. And uh, he came over, we sat down, he, he gave us an estimate, we talked about it for a while, and at some point he pulls out a paper with a contract, and he asked me to sign it. Now, I could have said, bro, I'm your neighbor. You know where I live. I'm right across the street from you. It's going to be fine. Our, our kids play together. Do we really need to do all this? But I didn't do that. Why? Because the signing of that contract is a binding promise. It's a kind of modern-day form of oath, and it helps me to keep my word to pay him when the job is done, and it helps him to do what he says he's going to do and do the work. So oaths actually have a helpful purpose in a world where people sometimes don't tell the truth. Which leads to our next question. Why did Jesus condemn oaths? If oaths were sometimes helpful in a fallen world, and if God himself sometimes swore oaths to help his people trust him, why does Jesus say don't swear oaths. The reason is that in that day, the religious leaders had concocted a sophisticated system where they could play fast and loose with the truth. They had con concocted this incredible, complicated system where, where the, the truth had a shifting standard, where they could swear one type of oath and it was binding and another type wasn't. Listen to Jesus in Matthew 23, verses 16 to 22. Woe to you blind guides who says, if anyone swears by the temple, it's nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, oh, if anyone swears by the altar, it's nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. So in other words, these Pharisees, the religious leaders, were swearing oaths left and right, but they had concocted this system where if they didn't say it in just the right way, they were not bound to keep it. That would be like us having a society where, you know, if you didn't use the right kind of ink when you signed a contract, it, it wasn't binding. Oh, you know, it wasn't a fountain pen. Sorry, man. 
You know, I was blue ink, not black. That sort of thinking where we're looking for loopholes. We're looking for ways to say we're going to do something, and yet we don't have to do it. Now, what I want you to imagine is how many people were hurt by this kind of oath. How many people? How many, how many families were destroyed by these kind of broken promises? How many people were wounded by lies like these? How many careers were destroyed? How much money was stolen? How many poor people were mistreated? How many widows were cheated? Jesus steps into this dynamic, into this culture, and he says, I care about the victims of lies. Not just this kind of lie, but any lie. So he speaks clearly against anyone and everyone who would play fast and loose with the truth. In our text, he essentially says, whether you swear by heaven, the earth, Jerusalem, or your own head, you're always swearing in the presence of God. He sees all of it. So tell the truth. A lie is a lie no matter what clever tricks you try to concoct to get out of it. That's what Jesus is saying. Which leads to another question. Does this mean we cannot take any oaths today? Look at verse 34 again. Jesus says, do not take an oath at all. What does he mean? Literalists like, like the Anabaptists of old or the Quakers today will not take any oaths. Uh, they will not serve in the military. They will not hold civic positions. They will not sit in a courtroom and swear an oath before a judge because they believe that that's what Jesus is saying here. If they're right, though, you probably shouldn't pledge allegiance to the flag either. You probably shouldn't agree to a church covenant. You probably shouldn't say vows on your wedding day. You probably shouldn't sign contracts. They're all essentially a form of oaths. I'm going to suggest that's not what Jesus means. Jesus is not saying oaths are never permissible. He's, he's speaking against a certain type of oath. One reason why I would argue that Jesus is not against oaths categorically is in Matthew chapter 26, when Jesus is on trial before the high priest, the high priest asked him on an oath to declare if he is the son of God. And Jesus does not rebuke the high priest. He doesn't refuse to answer. He says, you have said so. So I would argue, along with folks like John Calvin and Martin Luther, that there's a distinction between private speech and public speech. In private, in your conversations with your husband or your wife or your children or your coworkers, you shouldn't need to swear oaths. You shouldn't need to say to your wife, I swear to you by heaven and earth that I will be home by 5 p.m., for dinner. You should just tell her, I'm going to be home at five. And she should expect that you're going to tell the truth. And I, I'm saying that knowing my wife is watching and is going to talk to me later about how many times I come home late. 
in private, we don't need, we should not need oaths. Our yes should be yes, our no should be no. In public and weightier matters, like a, a contract or a wedding or a church covenant or serving in the military, we can and should take oaths, but we better take them seriously. I think that's what Jesus is saying. Jesus isn't saying never take an oath. He's saying, if you're going to swear oaths like the Pharisees do, it's better not to swear them at all. Now, before we move on, I want to ask this morning, have you been the victim of another person's lies? Has someone lied to you or about you? If you can answer yes to any of those questions, I want, I want to encourage you. Jesus sees. Jesus cares. Let me just share a few ways I think that Jesus is caring for you, a victim of lies. Number one, Jesus will never lie to you. Jesus will never lie to you. There might be some of you in this room, you've been lied to by your parents, by your employers, by your friends, maybe even your spouse. Listen to me, you will never be lied to by Jesus. That is good news. You will, you will never be lied to by Jesus. There might be some in this room, you, you have been lied to by a spiritual leader. You've been in a, a spiritually abusive church. Uh, you, you, you had a pastor that you trusted who lied to you and, and, and it seemed like your entire world crumbled. Listen to me. Don't swear off the water because it sometimes flows through rusty pipes. Jesus is true even when his people are not. Jesus can identify with the pain caused by lies. If you're in this room and you've been lied to, Jesus can identify with your, with your pain. Judas lied to Jesus for three years. Peter lied about Jesus three times. Jesus went to a cross to die in part because the Pharisees hired false witnesses with trumped up charges to lie about Jesus under oath. Jesus can identify with the pain of lies. Jesus can also heal the wounds that are caused by lies. Early in my marriage, I was a fool and a sinner. I still am a sinner. Hopefully not as much of a fool, but you'll know, have to ask Holly later. And I hurt my wife incredibly for several years. I caused great pain by living a double life and by sometimes lying directly to her. God used confession, accountability, and the grace of the gospel to heal the broken trust in our marriage. He can do the same thing to every single person in this room who has been wounded by a lie. God can heal it. God can heal it. Another way Jesus cares for you, if you're a victim of lies, Jesus commands liars to speak the truth. That's the whole point of this passage. 
Jesus does not ask you, if you're going to follow him, to be a doormat who just takes it. It's good and right to expect other people to tell the truth and to hold them accountable when they don't. And finally, and most importantly, Jesus empowers you to forgive liars. If you're a follower of Jesus, you can and must forgive those who lie to you or about you. You can and must. Listen to Colossians chapter 3, verses 9 and 13. Paul says, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. And then he says, Forgive each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Notice how you're supposed to forgive. Even those who lie against you, how do you forgive them? As the Lord has forgiven you. There is no better example of forgiveness than the forgiveness that Jesus has personally given to you, follower of Jesus. And if you have received that forgiveness, then you can give it to those who sin against you. Jesus cares about the truth because he cares about you. He cares about victims of lies. But also, number two, Jesus cares for the tellers of lies. Jesus cares for people who tell lies. In one of America's favorite legends about lying, a father teaches his son the importance of telling the truth. It's the intro to the legend of George Washington and the cherry tree. You remember the story? Father, I cannot tell a lie. I chopped down the cherry tree, right? Well, before, before the cherry tree was chopped down, George's father supposedly said, Oh, George, my son, rather than see you become a liar, dear as you are to my heart, gladly would I assist to nail you up in your little coffin and follow you to your grave. Hard indeed would it be to me to give up my son, whose little feet are always so ready to run about with me, and whose fondly looking eyes and sweet prattle makes so large a part of my happiness, but still I would give him up rather than see him a common liar. No wonder George told the truth right after he chopped down the tree. Dad would rather bury me than me tell him a lie. Right? Listen, if that's the way Jesus thinks about liars, then all of us would have been nailed in our little coffins long, long ago. Jesus cares more about the truth than Augustine Washington ever could. But Jesus cares more for liars than any of us could ever imagine. I want to ask, I want you to ask yourself some questions to understand your own heart as it relates to lying. Six questions. Now, at this point, you might be feeling a little bit deceived because you came in and you looked at your bulletin and there was only two points. And you thought, wow, this is going to be a short sermon. You didn't know that there was going to be 12 subpoints. Uh, I haven't preached since January, so I just got to keep going. Um, question number one, what is a lie? What is a lie? Look at verse 37. Jesus says, let what you say be simply yes or no. Th this is the major takeaway from Jesus' teaching. Don't lie. Be so truthful that you don't need to swear oaths. If you say yes, people understand. You mean yes. If you say no, they know that you mean no. So, so what's your reputation, brother, sister, friend? 
Are you someone who is trusted? Or are you known as someone who tells lies? Let me give you a two-word def- definition of a lie. What do we mean by a lie? Two words, intentional deception. That's a lie. Intentional deception. First, it's, it's, it's intentional. It's, it's trying to deceive someone. It's not accidentally misspeaking. So if, if your fellowship group said, we're going to have a, a party at Surfrider, and you tell someone accidentally it's at Surf's Up, you didn't lie. You weren't trying to deceive. You just misspoke. Okay, we do that all the time. A lie is intentional. You're trying to do what? You're trying to deceive. Intentional deception. A deception is trying to convince someone to believe something that isn't true. And by the way, you can deceive by your words, by a text message, an email, a letter, your body language, your facial expressions. All of those are ways that we might deceive. A lie is intentional deception. So the next question, am I guilty? I want every single person in this room to ask yourself, am I guilty of telling lies, of intentional deception? Again, Jesus says in verse 37, let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. The original language literally says, comes from the evil one, which leads to an incredibly important point about lying. We aren't liars because we lie. We lie because we're liars. We aren't liars because we lie. We lie because we're liars. It's in our nature. Jesus says this in John 8, 44, You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So too are every single one of us by nature. When we lie, we speak out of our nature. We were created to be truth tellers. In a world without lies, but Satan appeared to our first parents in the Garden of Eden, and he whispered a lie. And the moment Adam and Eve believed that lie and ate that fruit, the poison of dishonesty and deception entered into every single human who's ever lived but one. So the scripture says this, In Psalm 58, the wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. Isn't it interesting how this even agrees with that study we mentioned at the beginning of the sermon? Even from birth, before we can even speak, we are born deceiving. Maybe you're saying, well, that's not not true of me. I'm not like that. My word is my bond. I tell it like it is. I speak the truth. Be careful. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately uh, desperately sick. Who can understand it? Could it be that you are even deceiving yourself 
about whether or not you deceive others. So am I guilty of lying? I would say to every single person in this room, by nature, yes. In your sinful flesh, by nature, yes. All of us have gone astray from birth speaking lies. If you're in here and you're a follower of Jesus, that's most of the people in this room, if you're a follower of Jesus, you have been declared righteous. So Jesus never lied. He never sinned. Isaiah 53 says, no deceit was found in his mouth. He didn't just speak the truth. He was and is the truth. And yet he died as if he had lied all the times and in all the ways that you and I do. Three days later, he rose from the dead so that whoever believes in him can be forgiven and freed from the sin of lying. But if you're a Christian, you're declared righteous, and yet even though you're forgiven, you still battle against sin. That old flesh remains. Why does Paul say to a, a church filled with Christians in Colossians 3, we read this earlier, don't lie to each other. Why does he say that? Because even Christians in church sometimes lie to each other. So here's what, I, here's what I encourage you to say about yourself. If you're a Christian, you are a forgiven, recovering liar. Forgiven, recovering liar. If we're going to put lying to death, there's several more questions we need to ask ourselves. Here's another one. How do I lie? How do I lie? I want to encourage you to think about that with me. And I believe that there are dozens of ways that we tell lies. Let's examine a few of them. One is the outright lie. So picture Satan in Genesis chapter 3 saying to Adam and Eve, if you eat this fruit, you shall not surely die. What did God say? They would die. What did Satan say? They won't die. It's an outright lie. We understand this one. Do you ever tell outright lies? Something that's just categorically untrue. Another way we lie is by inference or insinuation. So lying by insinuating something that isn't true. Back to the garden. Genesis chapter 3 verse 5. Satan says, God knows that your eyes will be open if you eat this fruit. What's he saying? He's insinuating something about God. God isn't really as good as you think he is. If he was, he would tell you the truth. If he was, he would have told you your eyes would be open. He's insinuating something that isn't true. That's a form of lying. Let me give you another example. Imagine after church today, you run into a mutual acquaintance. And the person says, how's your pastor doing? Haven't seen him in a while. And you say, well, he's, he's doing well. I, I spent an hour with him this morning, and he was sober the whole time. Now, that's true, but the inference that you made was that I'm normally drunk, which is completely false. You see, that's a form of lying or the partial truth, concealing the truth by purposefully omitting key details. So again, Genesis 3, Satan, he's, he's right that Adam and Eve, their eyes are going to be opened, but he concealed something massive. By eating the fruit and disobeying God, 
incredible pain and devastation and suffering would follow. How often do you tell partial truths? Concealing something of the truth that's incredibly important, but telling little bits and pieces enough to get people to believe what you want them to believe. Another way we lie is by blame shifting. This is lying by shifting the responsibility to another person. So you remember, God appears in the Garden of Eden after Satan tempts them to eat the fruit. And what does Adam do? Woman, you gave me. She made me do it. And Eve, or the serpent, he made me do it. What are they doing? Both of them. Both of them are, rather than admitting their own sin, their own, their own rebellion, both of them are dishonest by pointing the finger somewhere else. I wonder how often you shift the blame to somebody else. It's a form of deception. It's lying. Yes, I was wrong to call you that, but you know how I get when I'm hungry. I wouldn't get angry if you didn't nag me all the time. I only snuck out because my parents don't give me any freedom. Thousands of other ways that we shift the blame rather than acknowledge it. It's a form of deception. Another one is to say, I don't know, when you do know. Now, it's legal to plead the fifth in a court of law, but it's deceitful to do so in life. If you think of Genesis chapter 4, Cain has killed his brother Abel, and God appears to Cain, and he says, where's Abel? And Cain says, I don't know. It's a lie. Now, young people and teenagers, you all tend to do this a lot, at least if you're anything like my kids. Did you do that? I don't know. Did you get into the cookies? I don't know. Listen, that is a form of dishonesty. It's lying. It's not truthful. Another way we lie is by making commitments with no intention of keeping them. Children to their parents. I'll clean my room after I finish this video game. Parents to their children. I'll spank you if you do that again. <laughs> A husband to his wife. I'll fix it this weekend. Or maybe church members to their elders. Of course I'll be involved in members' meetings. <laughs> Another way we lie is by hidden agendas. It's an ulterior motive behind what has been expressed. So think of King Herod telling the wise men he wanted to worship the baby Jesus. When underneath it all, he had a hidden agenda. I remember I used to do this over and over again as a boy. I would go into the pantry and find the, the package of Oreos and bring them to my mother and say, Mommy, I brought the Oreos for you in case you wanted one. And then I just wait there, you know, hopefully I'll get one in return, right? It's a hidden agenda. I'm acting as if I'm being kind and benevolent when really I just wanted something for myself. Do you ever operate under a hidden agenda? That's a form of deception. What about flattery? Flattery is saying something to someone's face that you would never say behind their back. And it's a form of deception. Or gossip. Gossip is saying something behind someone's back that you would never say to their face. It's a form of deception. 
There's a side note here. Not all gossip is necessarily untruthful, but often it is. Exaggeration is a form of lying. This is deception by magnification. And this is the great sin of fishermen everywhere, right? It was this big. We, we lie by exaggeration when, when, when we use words like always or never or uh, only or every or just once or a million times, things like that. Lying by exaggeration. You're, you're, you're trying to shrink the truth or hide the truth by exaggerating. Another way is minimizing. It's the opposite of exaggeration. Instead of making something look massive, you're making something look tiny. We do this a lot when we own up to sin. We minimize it. So rather than saying, I, I, I sinned today, and I looked at things I shouldn't have looked at, we say, well, I just, I, I'm struggling. I slipped up. I had, had a kind of a rough day. We even talk about little white lies. It's minimizing what God says is sin. Another way we lie, and perhaps we do this a lot in the church, is by the sin of hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is presenting a version of yourself that isn't true. Two nights ago, three nights ago, we had, um, actually it was on Valentine's Day, let me get the facts straight. On Valentine's Day, we had Brussels sprouts for dinner. And uh, well, not just Brussels sprouts, by the way. We're not those kind of people. <laughs> they, were, they were on the table among other dishes. And uh, I told my children, who were complaining about the Brussels sprouts, if you complain about Brussels sprouts, you'll get extra. If you take a Brussels sprout off your plate and put it on someone else's plate or back into the tray of Brussels sprouts, then you will get that one back plus another. It seemed to work. And last night, Holly made Brussels sprouts again. And I did not mention that I also am not a huge fan of Brussels sprouts. And Holly put uh, four Brussels sprouts on my plate. And I said, I don't want four, I want two. And I put two of them back in the tray. And Jonah said to me, you got to have four more, Dad. <laughs> and I said, well, that was the rule for Valentine's Day. This is different rules today. <laughs> and he said, hypocrite, hypocrite. And they even opened up their Bibles to Matthew 23, where Jesus says to the Pharisees, woe to you, hypocrites. And so I ate my Brussels sprouts. How often do we commit the sin of hypocrisy? We present a version of ourselves that's not rooted in truth, but in a lie. I think we do this a lot more than we like to admit as the people of God. Because somehow, somewhere along the line, we've gotten the idea that to gather as God's people means we're the holy ones, we're the put-together ones, we're the ones that, you know, we've kind of beat this thing, we're on the mountaintop, we're running our victory lap, but no, we're still in the middle of the race. The truth is, we're all weary and broken and sinful, and when we gather, we ought to at least be able to admit, I'm struggling today. We ought to be able to admit with our fellowship group, 
I had a bad week, and here's why. Will you pray for me? Instead of, everything is always hunky-dory happy all the time, because the truth is, it isn't. Do you lie by hypocrisy? Now, if you're in this room and you're not a follower of Jesus, you will never overcome this sin without Jesus' help. Never. You will find different ways to lie, creative ways to lie, but you will not beat this without the Spirit of God living inside of you. If you are a Christian, it's helpful to know how you're tempted to lie so that you can fight against the sin. So for example, if you tend to exaggerate, that's your struggle. You're an exaggerator. Focus on giving really accurate reports, right? So, you know, I did such and such at 12.02, and, and the fish weighed exactly 3.18 pounds, right? Focus on being as accurate as possible if you struggle with exaggeration. If you conceal you tell partial truths, if you conceal the truth, focus on being forthcoming and disclosing information. If you gossip, focus on being silent or even better, encouraging other people. If you blame others, focus on quickly owning up to your own sin. If you're hypocritical, focus on being transparent about how you're really doing. It helps to know how you're tempted to lie so you can fight it. Another question, perhaps an even more important question than how, is why. Why do I lie? I want to submit to you that usually we lie because we're afraid. That's the main, I believe, the main reason why we lie. If you've done something wrong, you lie because you're afraid of the consequences of your actions. So kids, you lie to your parents so you don't get disciplined. Or parents, you lie to your kids so they don't look down on you. We lie to our employers so we don't get in trouble at work because we're afraid. Or we lie because we're afraid people won't think highly of us. So we exaggerate or we tell big stories or we're hypocritical to make ourselves appear better than we really are because we want people to like us, to love us, to accept us. A Puritan named Richard Baxter said this, about fear and lying. Fear God more than man if you would not be liars. The excessive fear of man is a common cause of lying. It is what makes children so apt to lie, to escape the rod, and puts most people who are overly sensitive to being hurt in danger of lying in order to avoid the displeasure of others. But why do you not fear God more? His displeasure is unspeakably more terrible Your parents or your employer will be angry and threaten to correct you. But God threatens to damn you, and his wrath is a consuming fire. No man's displeasure can reach your souls and extend into eternity. Will you run into hell to escape punishment on earth? Remember, whenever you are tempted to escape any danger by a lie, that you run a thousandfold greater danger, and that no hurt that you escape by a lie can possibly be half so great as the hurt it causes. It's as foolish a course as to cure the toothache by cutting off the head. Listen, if you're a Christian, then the gospel has already delivered you from the worst possible consequences. 
You don't have to be afraid of anything lesser. Fear God more than you fear man. If we're going to put it to death, we need to ask ourselves another question, which is to whom should I confess? Could be you're listening to this and God is bringing up, hey, there's some lies I've told, some ways I've deceived people, intentionally deceived people, maybe even people in this room. What do I need to do about it? First, you need to confess to the Lord. If you're a Christian, you confess in faith that Jesus died to pay the penalty even for that sin. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and what? Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You rejoice in the forgiveness that you have in Christ. If you're in this room and you're not a follower of Jesus, you you run to him now. You run to him now. This is just one sin among legions of sins that we are all guilty of. And apart from the grace of Christ and the gospel, we have no hope. So we run to him, confess, believe the gospel. But there's another step that we need to take, some of us. This is the harder part, I think. Not just to confess to God, but to confess to others. Specifically, to confess to those that you have lied to or lied about. Go back over that list of ways that we lie, and there's plenty more if you spend some time thinking about it. If you lied by exaggeration or minimization or blame shifting or hypocrisy, you go to those people, say, I've sinned against you. Here's how. Will you forgive me? I want you to remember something. When we do that, it's going to hurt the people we confess to. But the truth is not what hurts them. It was the lie that hurt them. The truth is it's like the, the doctor who t- tells his patient that they have cancer. Him telling that to his patient isn't hurting his patient. The cancer is what's hurting them. By telling the patient what he has, now the the, the disease can be treated. And when we go to one another and confess how we've been dishonest with each other, that might hurt them. But remember, it was your dishonesty that hurt them. The truth is just revealing what was done. Maybe you're hearing all of this. And you say, well, how in the world can I do this? This is too hard. That's why I said you cannot do this apart from Christ. This type of honesty where we speak the truth to one another and we confess our sins to one another when we are deceptive, we cannot do this apart from the grace of Jesus. 620 years before Jesus walked the earth. A Greek man named Aesop became famous for using simple stories to convey powerful messages. And one of those stories goes something like this. There was a poor woodman who was out chopping wood and he lost his axe in the pond. And to make matters worse, it was a borrowed axe and he could not possibly repay the debt that he owed without the axe that he also needed to pay back. So he was in a lot of trouble. And so he he sat at the bank of the pond and began to weep when all of a sudden a magical fish came to the surface and he offered to retrieve the axe. The woodman agreed and the fish went to the bottom of the pond and he came back up with a silver axe in his hand or 
fins, whatever, he's a fish. Anyways, he's got a silver axe. And he says to the woodman, is this your axe? Woodman's tempted in that moment. If I say yes, I can have this silver axe and pay off all my debts. But he decides to tell the truth, and he says, that's not my axe. And so fish returns to the bottom of the pond and comes back up with a golden axe. And he asks the woodman again, is this your axe? Again, the woodman is tempted, but again, he tells the truth. And he says no. Finally, the fish goes to the bottom of the pond, and he retrieves the man's axe. And he says, is this your axe? And the woodman says yes. And the fish says, because you've told the truth, I'm going to give you all three axes, the wooden axe and the golden axe. And the moral of the story is, of course, that telling the truth pays. The truth is that sometimes telling the truth hurts. Sometimes telling the truth means confessing how you've lied. Sometimes it means confessing how you've cheated or stolen or lusted. Sometimes it means we don't get that promotion. Sometimes telling the truth means you pay more in taxes than you'd like. Sometimes it means you lose a career or a reputation or a relationship. We need more than a simple belief that honesty pays if we're going to be truth tellers in times like these. We need faith in a Savior who died on a cross even though there was no deceit found in his mouth. We need faith in a Savior who rose from the dead and will return and keep every one of his promises. We need grace from a Savior who loves both the victims of lies and those who tell them. We need Jesus. And that's exactly who we have in the gospel. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for sending Jesus. Jesus, we thank you that you are the truth. Help us to be truth-tellers. Could be in this room right now, there are brothers and sisters who find themselves confronted with their own deception. It's an uncomfortable feeling. Father, I pray that they would receive the grace of forgiveness even now. Even now, I pray that they would cry out to you and confess ways they've been dishonest. And give them the courage to not only confess to the God they cannot see, but to the brothers and sisters that they can. Lord, I pray that PBC would be overflowing with confession of sin this week. As we're honest with each other. 